0: Hello and welcome to the Sifted podcast. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor.
1: And I'm Freya, Sifted's climate tech reporter.
0: And at Sifted, in case you don't know about us, we report on Europe's tech and startup sector. And every week on this podcast, we have a look at the hottest stories of the week. And this week, there have finally been a lot.
1: So this week, we're talking about some big news for French NFT gaming startups, so Rare, And we'll hear from our reporter in France, Chris O'Brien, about how Snap the company behind Snapchat, controversially shut down one of its businesses.
0: And we're going to be having a little discussion between me and Freya about climate tech, why there's suddenly been so many climate tech funds announced and fundraises announced, and what role we think startups and new technologies can actually play with the energy crisis that we're facing at the moment.
1: But before we get into all of that, it's been a busy news week finally, hasn't it? It
0: has. We've been moaning about how all the VCs have been just chilling in their Swedish cottages or on their boats in the Med or whatever. And it really has been back to school week. We have been absolutely inundated with announcements of new funds and also of new startups raising, which is a tad stressful, especially given that. Eleanor is on holiday and another one of our editors is sick, but it's all exciting, right, Freya?
1: Yeah, we finally got back to writing some quick news hits, which I personally really enjoy and get a real buzz off, so that's good. I had a very sleepy August. Yeah, we so. refer
0: to Freya as our Usain Bolt of news because you ask <laughs> her to write something and in about three seconds she's filed the piece. Which I love is... it,
1: I get a real buzz off it, so great. I'm glad to be back at it.
0: But so let's talk about some of those news stories. So this week, the French NFT fantasy sports startup SoRare made a big announcement that it signed a partnership with the U.S.'s National Basketball Association, a.k.a. the NBA, which is, you know, a pretty big deal in the United States, which follows... After them, also landing big deals with Major League Baseball and Major League Soccer earlier this year. So it's obviously really pushing hard into the US market. And we have spoken about SORA a few times on the pod. But if you haven't heard of them before, they are a big rising star of the French tech scene. They were last valued at $4.3 billion at their last funding round. And they've got investors like SoftBank and Axel behind them.
1: And perhaps for people who haven't followed the SoRare story closely, can you just briefly explain exactly what they do?
0: Yeah, so So SoRare is a fantasy sports game that allows people to collect these cards, which are non-fungible tokens, or in other words, NFTs. Um, And they basically represent real-life sports players. So with your cards of your famous sports players that you've bought, you can then build up a team. With these player cards and then you can enter them into tournaments and then the success of your team is based on how well those real people and their real clubs are doing in the real world And you get rewarded with these kind of cryptocurrency prizes. You can also trade the cards. So, you know, kind of very valuable cards can go for sometimes as much as hundreds of thousands of euros. And the way SoRare makes money is by selling the cards in the first place. And it's already generated more than 150 million euros in annual revenue, which contributed to it landing those big name investors and getting its chunky valuation. It's a lot of money. So why is the, the deal with
1: the NBA? Why, why is that?
0: Yeah, so obviously, Serie started in France, and it started with football, and it had lots of European football players. And then it said, you know, we're going big, we're going to hit up the US. And now it has this NBA deal, which means it's steadily, you know, a kind of acquiring lots of the big and most popular sports in the United States, which obviously has a very big population. Basketball is the second most popular sport in the US behind American football, not European football. And that means, you know, it has a big slice of the market. And the US sports market in total is meant to be worth $80 billion this year, which is a lot more than all of the sports leagues in Europe combined, 50% more. That's all obviously great
1: news for Sora, but I've heard that there are some bigger headaches for the company at the moment.
0: Yeah, so SORA is obviously doing a great job. It's landing all of these deals. It's got 2 million registered users in most of the countries of the world. And yet the regulators are coming for it. So authorities in France and in the UK are already assessing it to see whether they think it is or isn't a gambling product. And it has already been blocked as a gambling product in Switzerland. Now, the critics say that that's because players can make money in the game totally based on chance but Sora says that this is a kind of whole new category of gaming and that players don't have to pay a stake to play the game because they've already paid to have their nfts and players can get hold of some cards totally for free they're just obviously not always the best ones and so it makes it kind of harder to win when you're playing with those ones
1: and what happens if the French regulator does come down on the side of it being a gambling
0: product? So if the regulators decide that SORA is a gambling product, then there'll be taxed more, there'll be user age restrictions, and there'll probably be compliance checks. So just more, I guess, barriers to entry for the for the customers.
1: I guess we'll have to wait and see, because that sounds like it can have a big impact on the business if it falls on that side. But onto some of the funding news we had this week. As we said earlier, we had a lot more than in previous weeks. And one round we thought was particularly interesting was a £4.5 million round for Code First Girls, which is a coding school which offers lessons for women and non binary people around the world.
0: So, Amy, how big is the problem that they want to fix? So the stats are still extremely grim. So 93% of all professional tech developers identify as men, according to the latest Stack Overflow Global Developer Survey, which is one of these kind of benchmark reports that comes out every year. And it's not looking much better in the talent pipeline either. So 88% of those currently learning to code also identify as men. So it's a mega problem that Code First Girls is trying to fix
1: yeah, they're depressing stats. And what's Code First's plan
0: to, to tackle that? So Code First provides these free virtual sessions for women and non-binary people to learn how to code. And they come in three different formats. There are online open courses, classes and what they called Code First Girls degrees. And that saves people a lot of money. So, a 12 week coding and data software nano degree, as they're called, normally costs about £10,000. And Code First courses are free. And that's not the only thing. Code First courses are also likely to actually lead to these women and non binary people getting jobs. And it's aiming to place over 26,000 women into roles over the next five years. And if you're wondering how on earth Code First therefore makes money, it's because it operates on a kind of business to business subscription model. So companies that know they have a tech talent gap and be an even bigger female tech talent gap subscribe to code first companies like Credit Suisse, Nike, Deloitte, Goldman Sachs, NatWest, Skyscanner, Barclays, Tesco's you name it these massive companies pay code first a set fee that basically guarantees they can have their pick of the talent from the course once the students have finished and they then cover the costs of the tuition
1: so who's typically signing up to these courses
0: So you don't have to have a university degree and you don't have to be a particular age to sign up to Code First. And Code First told Sifted that it's increasingly seeing women who have already had a career join Code First in order to switch careers. Um, The diversity stats are also really impressive so 57% of the people who've been through Code First cohorts have been from underrepresented minorities and around 30% of the people that have taken a course were eligible for free school meals which for people outside of the UK is something that people get if they're from kind of lower income families so it's used as a kind of proxy for people who are from less privileged backgrounds. So this is obviously, you know, all seems super great. What I would like to see is more scale ups and startups doing things like this, either working with organizations like Code First or setting up programs of their own. Because there have been some other reports that have come out recently that show that at the big enterprise level, the gender gap in coding is not as bad as it is at smaller Businesses, So it'd be really cool if we see the kind of smaller businesses also manage to work with initiatives like this to ensure that their tech gender gap is not so big. So Freya, on to our climate tech discussion. You have been a busy bee this week because there's been a whole lot of news. Tell us about Lightyear.
1: Yeah, Lightyear are really exciting. There's a lot of hype around them. They're a Dutch company, they're building a solar powered car. And they just raised 81 million euros this week, which is a big chunk. And it's also in the current economic climate an exciting sign that things are going to go well for the climate tech world. So they're building a car, it's called the Lightyear Zero, and they're hoping to get it on the road by the end of this year. It's going to cost €250,000 each, so it's quite pricey. But I spoke to them at the end of last year and their plan in the end is to bring out a more mainstream commercial model. Uh, this is kind of the proof of concept model, and this money should hopefully help them finally get it onto the road. So it's, it's really exciting news.
0: And will it be on the on- Roads in London, roads in Paris. Where, where? roads in
1: Paris, not roads in London. It's they're bringing it out in the European Union only first, so it's a bit disappointing. Sometimes. Here in it's, it's
0: sunnier in a lot of the. the True. European
1: yeah. Union and yeah. They did the say United. that the I think the average range that you'll get is seventy kilometers, but if you're in Southern Europe, you're going to go a lot further, obviously. So maybe it wouldn't work in London too well.
0: And did they say who their target customer is? Who actually has two hundred and fifty k to splash on a? snazzy climate friendly vehicle
1: I get the impression that the first cohort is sort of proof of concept and also an investment structure so people are kind of backing them if they like the concept I I don't know who the customers are but I think they're going to be people interested in climate tech and interested in the concept that they're building and then they said to me that the aim is to use that chunk of money from the kind of premium model to finance the more mainstream model because they eventually want to have a car that anyone can buy obviously at that Price, it's not there yet, but I think that's the aim in the end.
0: Amazing. And the way that Lightyear's cars work, in case this sounds a bit mysterious to you, is that they fit solar cells to the car roof and the front of the vehicle, and then they have motors located within each wheel, which helps eliminate the friction of the axles and therefore lowers the amount of energy the car uses. And then, in different energy news, Tesseract which is a renewable energy company founded by two very early Revolut employees, raised a $78 million round, and that was its first ever announced funding round, led by Balderton and Linkstar, so big names in the European tech ecosystem. And they weren't the only big-name VCs. They also had Axel, Creandum, people like DST Global's Tom Stafford and Index's partner Martin Mignot getting in on the game, which was a signal to me that this must have been an extremely popular deal to get in on.
1: Yeah, there's been so much discussion about... So Alan Chang, it was the third employee at Revolut. He's a big name in particularly the London startup ecosystem. There'd been a lot of discussion about what he was going to do next. It was announced that he was leaving Revolut in March. And since then, there'd been like murmurings of what he was going to go on to do. And people had started to gather It was something to do with energy. But yesterday was the first time he actually came out and said what Tesseract's going to do. And yeah, his notoriety has helped him secure a a very impressive list of investors.
0: But what is Tesseract actually going to do?
1: So I think it's still slightly unclear. They're saying they want to decentralise energy and Chang put out a quote saying he wants to do what Revolut did to the banks, to the energy market. So Tesseract's plan is to buy and build renewable energy assets, either solar or wind power. And then they want to cut out the middleman typically the energy system works by a company will buy energy from another company and then sell it to the consumer. Tesseract wants that to just be from the energy company straight to the consumer. So they would be directly purchasing renewable energy. And Tesseract said in their press statement yesterday that they think that that could cut people's bills by up to 100%.
0: So Freya's obviously going to be out there snooping and trying to figure out how exactly this will work. And another question we've had that we've been discussing, haven't we, Freya, is whether it matters that Chang and his co-founder don't actually have any experience in the energy sector. What have people on your WhatsApp been saying about that?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one. I'm seeing a lot of kind of tech celebs or previous tech founders moving into energy. I guess it's a really hot topic. So Steve Wozniak, the former Apple co-founder has also launched a kind of web 3 blockchain energy company so people are getting into it from from very different sectors i don't know if you need expertise i mean this tesseract sounds like something where the expertise is going to need to be on like maybe building apps or some of the experience you'd take from fintech. I don't know how much they're going to be actually down in the weeds of solar plant construction.
0: I also was speaking to a VC at drinks thing last night and he said the kind of classic line that people say which is that sometimes you need people to come from outside an industry to really see ways of making it more efficient or points where you can innovate and if you've been in a sector for too long you sort of see too many red flags rather than opportunities, which maybe is a fair point, maybe ends up in trouble with the regulators. And they've clearly got a really big
1: vision. So I saw a tweet Alan Chang put out saying something like, if this goes well, energy will be priced like water, which is, yeah, obviously at the moment, very far from how we are with our energy bills. A Um, pretty appetizing offer. Yeah, it's it's exciting. I guess in the background to all of this is what happened with Bulb, the British energy company that was like very hyped it was london's fastest growing startup for a while and then it went into an administration at the end of last year and that also had some co-founders who were quite famous and celebrated in the ecosystem and it kind of tanked so i think in people's minds there's a bit of that as a backdrop that people have tried to go into this sector and it hasn't worked out but this is a different idea and it's a different team so we'll have to
0: see and this connects to a much smaller raise that was also announced this week from Munich based startup called Tozero, which is working on recycling critical metals from lithium iron batteries. These are the batteries that are in, for example, electric vehicles. And it raised a 3.5 million euro round led by Atlantic Labs, which is a Berlin based VC, which also invests very heavily into kind of the food side of climate tech. Rafael, why might we need lots more companies like Tozzaro? Yeah, I'm really excited
1: about this one. I think a lot of people in recent months, I've noticed, have been thinking about the fact that the energy transition, the climate transition will need... Resources in itself. So, when you make a wind turbine, you need a lot of steel. When you make a solar panel, you use a lot of materials. And there's this whole concept at the moment people are talking about the solar panel graveyard, about where they go afterwards, and the fact that they themselves could cause a lot of waste. And it's particularly, as you said, around battery metals. So, they're hard to mine, they're a limited resource. And at the moment, batteries have a finite life cycle so we don't know what to do with them at the end. There are startups working on things like putting them into other uses when they've been in a car but this is an exciting idea because they're they're saying that they could take things like lithium and cobalt and nickel which the price of them is, is soaring because there's such a certain demand and they are a limited resource but this startup says that it can recycle them back into the battery supply chain. So they can take lithium, for example, out of a battery and get it into a state where it can go back into a battery, which is really exciting and would mean that the whole kind of climate transition materials market could become in itself circular, which it needs to do.
0: Great. So if you're a startup listening to this and you are working on making the climate tech ecosystem more circular, please get in touch with Freya.
1: Yes, I'm really interested in hearing... Hearing more ideas around it. My email address is freya at sifted.eu.
0: And finally, we're joined by Chris O'Brien, one of our freelance reporters who's based in Paris, who this week got the inside story on a big decision from social media giant Snap, which decided to close down one of the startups they owned in France. That business is called Zendly, and it's a social mapping app that lets its users see where their friends are and what they're up to. And it was still pretty popular with users just before it got axed. So Chris, why did this make such a splash in the French tech scene?
2: Hey, well, thanks for having me. I think there are kind of two big reasons. First, up until now, for the most part, the French tech ecosystem has been not completely immune, but somewhat immune to some of the anxiety, global anxiety around startups and uh, valuations and funding and things like that. So it was probably maybe the first really big splash to see this number of layoffs, about 73. And I think the second reason was Zenly is sort of symbolically important because when it was acquired by Snap in 2017, The French tech ecosystem was still sort of craving this credibility on the international stage. So to have a big social media player like Snap from the US come in and sort of buy them, it was sort of a type of validation for the ecosystem that had really been hungry to have.
0: And what was it about Zenly that made Snap want to buy it in the first place?
2: Well, I'm sure you're familiar with many attempts over the years to really make location sharing and mapping a kind of social thing, going back to Foursquare and other various iterations. That was even the sort of genesis of Instagram, famously, before they gave up on it. And so I think there was a feeling that maybe Zenly had cracked that code on that in terms of creating a social spe- experience around location and so you know it just made sense that if snap could add that into its other mobile experiences that could add an interesting wrinkle to to the whole snap experience
0: And so what reasons has snap given for shutting down zendly it's obviously not having the best of years itself its stock price has been
2: really tanking So if we flash forward five years to present day after the acquisition, the way Snap sort of managed Zenly was to say, hey, guys, don't worry about your revenue model. Don't worry about monetizing what's going on. We want you to kind of focus on product innovation, on design, growing users. And the reality is Zenly is beloved by the people who use it. It's it's big in Asia, Japan, particularly in Russia, but it's not huge. You know, it's not topping the app stores around the world. Sometimes in Japan, but generally, it's a pretty small footprint. And so, from Snap's point of view, with their own finances under pressure, they're looking at at Zenly and saying, "Well, you're not generating any revenue. We're basically subsidizing you. And even if you did make money," it would be so little compared to Snap, which is a company that posts a billion in revenue every quarter, you're not going to make a dent in our bottom line. So we're closing you down.
0: But famously, French uh, kind of HR law and things like that is not super simple, is it, Chris? So Snap can't exactly fire all these people straight away and shut the
2: office. That's right, and this is sort of a point of fascination for me being an American who was in Silicon Valley for 15 years and now is in Europe and sort of fascinated by the differences in the ecosystems and the cultures, but also the, the regulatory picture. This is something that in Silicon Valley in the US, people would be pretty critical of that regulations in Europe and France specifically are so protective of workers and make it hard for you to do the things that you can do pretty easily in the US, like firing thousands of people at the drop of a hat. Just can't do that here in France. And so SNAP now has to make an economic justification for its decision to French regulatory authorities. And that's a process that could take a couple months. We've seen it take more than a year in some circumstances, including one I I mentioned in the story. We'll see how long this takes to play out. But SNAP now has the burden to justify this decision to French regulators.
0: And meanwhile, the employees, the 73 employees, are just in this totally weird limbo state. You mentioned in the piece that even this week, four new people had to join and they have to kind of continue acting as though nothing has happened while this all plays out. How? What's the mood on the ground
2: uh, I think it's pretty angry and it's pretty shocked because, again, those types of things in Silicon Valley in the U.S. you're just expected to suck it up and move on. You know that's life, and and if you don't understand, that's how the game works. Too bad for you. And France, you know, there's a feeling of hey, you know, was there really a, any thinking, any reflection on this decision, or alternatives explored? And so. Yeah, they're now kind of frozen in place. They have this sort of twilight zone of they have to act with customers and partners like nothing has changed. I think they can't even actually tell them the app is being closed down, even though it's been publicly announced and they have to come to work like they have every day and keep doing the things they're doing. And then, you know, in theory, there'll be all these support services to help them find jobs or uh, maybe even start businesses. But if they leave before that final decision is taken by SNAP and the French government, they could lose some of the benefits they might otherwise get. So it's a risky proposition. I mean, you know, even with the strange economic moment we have, there's lots of companies out there still fighting for talent. And so it's... I expect that quite a few of them are going to get job offers and they'll have to decide, do I take a job with another startup or do I just sit around here for a year or six months or whatever, waiting to see what kind of exit package I might get.
0: Okay, thanks, Chris. And to end this on a maybe slightly positive note, if they were going to jump ship, what seemed the most buzzy, exciting Parisian startups to join right now? Where would Career Advisor Chris send them knocking?
2: Well, gosh, you know, I mean, I know uh, I and and you guys have written several stories about them, but, you know, Sarar still seems to surprise. They had that big NBA deal they just announced and that uh, Sifted wrote about, Um, you know, even despite the sort of crypto freakouts and Web3 skepticism, there still seems to be a lot of buzz around them. And then, you know, some of the other cloud companies, whether it's, let's see, Aircall, some of the fintechs, I mean they're still posting big gains and big numbers and hiring lots of people so you know it, it's just the strangeness of the moment it's uh, but there's still a lot of opportunity out there
0: thank you so much chris
2: thanks
1: that's all we've got time for but if you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of european tech and startups you can find all our coverage on sifted.eu
0: You can also find all the articles mentioned in this episode in the podcast description. We'll also stick Freya's email address in there in case you've got some juicy climate tips for her. And we would love to see you at the Sifted Summit. It is now only a month away. Tickets are live. Get them at summit.sifted.eu. We've got loads of interesting climate tech speakers coming along if that floats your boat see you there 5th and 6th of October in London
1: and please if you're interested in climate tech sign up to my climate tech newsletter which goes out every Thursday
0: thank you for being an excellent stand-in for Eleanor while she's enjoying the mountains of Japan thanks for having me
1: on Bye. bye